This is Stephanie Coons from Palm Desert, California, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything that you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So, if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So, let's get on to today's show. Before we get started, though, I wanted to take the time to thank everyone who gave their comments and feedback on the back-to-back Patreon episodes that I had for supporters of the show, The Tale of Mary Vincent and The Tale of Linda Sobeck. And I had a small spike in new subscribers following those episodes. And I think I was able to thank most of you who joined in July and August in the last episode. There were a couple more of you who have joined who I would like to take the time to thank now. Linda Ortiz, Belky Garrido, Jen M., who increased her pledge, Tracy Davis, Lacey Rowe of the fabulous Curious AF podcast, and Sunny Nelson. If you would like to gain access to the two newest Patreon bonuses, as well as all the other content available, for as little as $1 a month, you too can gain access. Also, exclusively for Patreon subscribers, California Dreaming has launched a sister Facebook page called KD2 Postmortem. If you subscribe and you would like to join us for a more in-depth discussion regarding the Patreon content, please request to join and answer the question that you are prompted to when you do. Thank you to all of you who stepped up and subscribed to Patreon in the last couple weeks and to all of you who continue to support the show. Now, in regards to today's episode, this story has many, many players in it. There are so many names, so many characters, defendants, witnesses, reckless young people, many parents of said reckless young people. But there is only one mastermind and one victim. So in order to make sure we are keeping up with who's who, I'm going to more often than not continue to refer to many of the individuals in the story by both their first and last name. And I will periodically remind you listening who they are in relation to the story if there seems to be a need for a refresher. I am not great with remembering names and what they did or didn't do myself, so if anything, I need the reminders. Okay, so let's go. This is going to be quite a story. 
When he was born, he was just given this name that seemed like it was meant to be memorable. Jesse James Hollywood. Born to parents Jack and Lori Hollywood on January 28, 1980. But for purposes of this story, I am going to refer to him as Jesse James because there is another person in the story also named Jesse and I don't want to get them confused. And it will annoy me to try and refer to him by his last name, Hollywood. So we are going to call him Jesse James. He was raised in the West Hills area of Los Angeles. And he seemed to have a pretty ordinary childhood. He enjoyed playing baseball. For a time in the mid-90s, his father relocated to Colorado to open a restaurant, but ended up coming back to West Hills in short order. Jesse James would continue playing baseball as he attended El Camino Real High School. And it was also during this time that he wanted to begin building up some muscle mass. So he started taking muscle supplements and power weightlifting. But by his sophomore year, he started showing some troubling emotional behaviors. His coach would say he seemed like a very emotional kid who was prone to outbursts. As a matter of fact, he would eventually be expelled for exploding into a fit of rage aimed at one of his teachers just as he was about to finish up the 10th grade. He ended up being transferred to Calabasas High School where he made it onto the varsity baseball team there too. But ultimately, injuries to his back and his leg would cause him to have to hang up his baseball glove for good. By the time Jesse James was 20 years old, he could still easily pass for a teenager. Standing only 5 foot 5 inches tall or 1.65 meters and 140 pounds or 63.5 kilograms. His frame was small. And for some reason, the friends he kept were mostly in middle school. He liked to drink. He liked to smoke weed. And before long, he was dealing drugs to the point that he was able to actually buy his own home in West Hills in quite an affluent section of the community. And his house was the party house. It was also really close to where Jesse James once played baseball at the West Hills Baseball Complex. He had been an all-star pitcher coached by his dad. But now, several of those who used to play baseball were now partying with him at his home including a young man by the name of Ryan Hoyt. And Ryan Hoyt is definitely going to be a name you guys are going to want to remember. By the time Jesse James reached this point in his life, he was already considering himself quite the accomplished drug dealer. He had been able to smuggle in a particularly potent type of marijuana called British Columbian Bud in tightly sealed bricks. His friends were the ones who helped him break the stuff down into ounces and sell it. And in exchange, they had an all-access pass to party and indulge themselves at Jesse James's party house pretty much on a nightly basis. And all the while, Jesse James was easily making enough money to keep up the mortgage payments on the party house. But what often happens in situations like this, the friends start consuming more of the stuff than selling it. 
And the one who was guilty of this most was Ryan Hoyt. And before long, Ryan wasn't even one of Jesse James's dealers anymore. He was being made to try to have to work off some of the debt that he had accumulated by doing chores around the house. He was doing housekeeping, yard work, cleaning up after Jesse James's dog. But none of it ever really seemed to satisfy the debt that he was in for all the weed that he had smoked up. And at the time when this story really begins to take off, Ryan had amassed about a $1,200 debt to Jesse James. And there was just no way he was going to be able to weasel out of it. Jesse James just wouldn't have it. And these guys also spent quite some time videotaping a lot of their antics around the house. And there would be a portion of video where Jesse James is asking Ryan about how much money he has in the bank. Ryan Hoyt asks him if he could stop recording, but Jesse James continued to press him, asking him again, how much? How much can you get from the bank? Ryan replied, enough money to pay you some. Jesse James asked again, what's going to be there tomorrow? Hoyt, I'm serious, man. I can see this is going to be like nothing. And Ryan tries to tell him that it's not going to be nothing. And Jesse James says back to him, what's it going to be then? Just tell me. This video was recorded sometime towards the beginning of 2000. About six months later, Jesse James's party would be shut down for good. All because of his misguided attempt to have Ryan Hoyt settle his debt by carrying out a plan to settle another debt, also in the amount of $1,200, owed to him by another man, an individual with whom Jesse James had a growing feud. And Ryan Hoyt would agree to go along and carry out the orders of this mid-level drug dealer, Jesse James, with an ego way bigger than he would ever be. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Jesse James Hollywood. Jesse James was not an individual who would easily forgive a debt. One way or another, whether it you become his indentured servant or you perform some more sinister tasks for him, he had to be paid back if you didn't have the money when he demanded it. Ryan Hoyt owed Jesse James $1,200, but so did another man that was a neighbor of Jesse James's, a man named Benjamin Markowitz. He allegedly owed Jesse James this money, but Ben would not be intimidated by him, not like the little gang of followers that he tended to have. Not Ben. He was not the slightest bit impressed by Jesse James. As a matter of fact, by some accounts, Jesse James may have been the one who was slightly afraid of Ben. They played in the same baseball league when they were kids, but Ben was older, much larger, and not to mention more of a badass than Jesse James. And Ben, some would say, was even crazier than him as well. From his mid-teens, Ben was already getting into trouble and developing a reputation for being a troublemaker. He had vandalized property, 
stolen cars. He had taken a pair of brass knuckles to another kid's forehead, splitting it open. And he had spent eight months in a juvenile detention camp. He went by the name Bugsy and he was heavily tattooed. He even had tattooed on him the insignia of the Peckerwoods, which is a white supremacist gang based in the San Fernando Valley, even though his dad was Jewish. And his father, Jeff Markowitz, who operated his own machine shop in his home where he manufactured parts for the aerospace industry, was divorced from Ben's mom when he was only four. But then he took over custody when Ben was 12. Dad had tried a variety of different tactics to get his son on the straight and narrow. He sought professional help for Ben. They tried medications. He tried getting Ben into martial arts, thinking that would be a good outlet for his son. But nothing really seemed to work. As Dad would put it, I didn't know what the hell to do. He was becoming this urban legend in our hometown. Jeff Markowitz would eventually get remarried to a woman named Susan, and together the couple would have another son, a half-brother to Ben, named Nicholas. He was seven years younger than Ben. And as Nick grew up, while his older brother was off blazing a path of destruction through his teen years, it didn't seem that the couple felt as though that they were going to pretend like they were going to be able to bridge the age gap between the brothers, They were not going to be able to try to forge a healthy bond between the two. Susan was very protective of Nick, not really wanting Ben's destructive behavior to have any effect or influence on him. As a matter of fact, Susan did everything that she could to shield Nick from witnessing any of Ben's troubling behaviors or knowing the reality of what really goes on in his older half-brother's life. But Susan's efforts were all for naught. Ben was his older brother, and Nick grew to idolize him. He really looked up to him. And Ben, for his part, didn't do anything to try and keep his family out of his antics either. He just was never low-key about any of his destructive behaviors. So Ben and Jesse James lived approximately 12 blocks away from each other. They both attended El Camino Real High School. Remember, Jesse James was expelled for verbally attacking a teacher who incidentally had dress-coded him for a t-shirt that he was wearing. And not to be outdone, Ben was expelled for punching a girl who threw a milk carton at him. Jesse James did go on to graduate from Calabasas High School in 1998, but Ben, he didn't go back. But when it came to a desire for money and social status and appearing to be successful, those were all of the things that were important to Jesse James, though he was earning it all through drug dealing. He had a staff of anywhere between five and ten dealers at any given time, and with each of them bringing in several hundred dollars a month, often upwards of $1,000 each, Jesse James could easily make $50,000 a month. Plenty of partying money. Jesse James always had a girlfriend. He always had weed. He had a couple of cars that were fully loaded and customized. And he bought that home just a couple of blocks from his parents' house 
all before he was 20 years old. And Ben had been one of Jesse James's dealers. But Ben wasn't like him and his circle of friends. Ben was genuinely a bad guy. He was irresponsible. He was careless. He was not good with handling money. He lost track of the drugs when he was supposed to be selling, or he'd just smoke it all up. He got into debt over and over again. But because of the way Ben is and how he conducts himself, he just didn't care. He would not take orders from Jesse James, or anyone for that matter. Consequences meant nothing to Ben. If you had to compare the two, Jesse James was a wannabe, and Ben was for real. And things would begin to simmer between the two of them into the early part of 2000. There was a grudge that was growing. Jesse James would try to contact Ben, wanting to try to work things out with his homie, or so he thought they were homies. But Ben would just tell him, it's your move. And things kind of hit the fan that February of 2000. Jesse James and his girlfriend went to go have dinner at a restaurant where Ben's girlfriend was employed. The couple ran up a $50 tab, and when they left, Ben's girlfriend picked up the bill, and Jesse James had written a note that read, Take this off of Ben's debt. This infuriated Ben. He had some information on Jesse James that he threatened to turn him in on. Jesse James was involved in a $35,000 insurance fraud scheme that involved one of his cars. He dismantled the vehicle, sold all the parts, and then reported it stolen. According to Jesse James's dad, this scared him. Ben scared him. Dad would even go so far as to say that Jesse James was being terrorized by Ben. By August, Jesse was getting ready to move out of his house. He had everything put in storage by the 6th of August. A couple of nights earlier, Ben had been over there and took a metal pipe to some of the windows on his house. And Jesse James, with the help of some of his friends, borrowed a van that belonged to a friend of his dad's to use to move his stuff out of the house. Driving the van was one of his old baseball teammates, a guy named Jesse Rugi, another high school dropout, most of his body covered in tattoos as well, as he had a family member who worked at a parlor. And in the back of the van, another baseball teammate, William Skidmore, Though he was half Latino, he seemed to associate with the Filipino gang. Ryan Hoyt, working off his debt, stayed at the house to clean up all of the glass that Ben broke. So the three of them are in this van, and they have this plan to head up to a festival in Santa Barbara that week, Old Spanish Days. But before they left, they felt like they needed to deal with Ben first. They weren't going to let him off the hook for breaking those windows at Jesse James's house. They discussed amongst themselves what they should do. Maybe they could look for him. But then what? Did the three of them think that they could take Ben? Maybe. I don't know. 
They entertained the idea of going by his house and breaking some of their windows in retaliation. And as they drove along, trying to come up with a plan to deal with Ben, they just so happened to spot Ben's 15-year-old brother, Nick, walking by. This was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Nick wasn't anything like his older brother, Ben. He was a pretty good student. He participated in school plays. He was even a volunteer peer counselor. But he wasn't exactly squeaky clean. He was known to dabble in using drugs. Well, maybe a little more than dabble. He was known to regularly abuse Valium, and he smoked dope. He had been caught at school with drugs and was taken into custody. The night before, he had gone out with some friends, and when he got home, it was obvious to his parents that he was high. But they just allowed him to go to bed. They would talk to him in the morning about it. Well, when Nick woke up, he really did not want to deal with his parents. So while his mom was distracted, he quietly slipped out of the house. And that's when Jesse James spotted him walking down the street. The three of them in the van decided to jump Nick. They quickly pulled up next to Nick and got out of the van and started attacking him, punching and kicking him. Then they tossed him inside the van. But as they were doing this, a woman named Pauline Ann Mahoney was driving by when she saw that the three of them were doing this to this kid. She managed to see the license plate of the van before it sped away. And she and her three children in the car chanted the plate number in unison as they made the rest of the way to their residence, where they were able to call 911 with the plate information. She told the operator that there were some guys beating the crap out of a kid. 911, however, made kind of a huge mistake, and they didn't get all the information. They did dispatch the call, but instead of broadcasting the incident as a kidnapping, they broadcasted it as an assault, which was much less urgent. There was even a second 911 call with a similar description of what took place. But I just don't think they got the information across that the kid was being forced into the van. So the officers responding to the call, they called up Pauline and spoke to her over the phone instead of going to see her in person and making an actual report of the incident. The police just didn't think that the event these 911 callers witnessed was all that serious. And what made things even worse is they never got in touch with the registered owner of that van. You know, they had the license plate, but they read the address wrong of the registered owner. So they never got in touch with him. They never got the information that he loaned his van to his friend's son who was moving. And they never tracked it down. They dropped the ball. And as a result of these egregious mistakes, two LAPD officers were written up and two 911 operators were suspended for three days. 
And this would not be the first missed opportunity to help Nick. I don't know what it was about everyone who encountered Nick over the next two and a half days. But in some ways, it kind of reminds me of Kitty Genovese. Many of you crime buffs out there know the story. She was the woman who was stabbed to death outside her apartment in Queens on March 13, 1964. And about two weeks later, after an investigation into the crime, the New York Times published an article that claimed 38 people either saw or heard the attack on Kitty, but no one attempted to help or call police. It's been called the bystander effect. Yeah. In this story, this is kind of what this feels like, what happened to Nick. As many as two dozen people would see Nick. And they knew, at least in some capacity, that he was being held against his will. But nobody did anything, or became seriously alarmed about the situation, or made any attempt to contact law enforcement. But it should be noted that it wasn't necessarily apparent that Nick was being held against his will. They weren't always exactly keeping a close eye on him. And Nick kind of went along with what they asked him to do without too much hesitation or worry. Nick knew why he was there, the feud with his brother. And he figured the best thing that he could do was to be as cooperative as he could be so he could help Ben get out of whatever jam he was in. He even jokingly said that someday this was just going to be another story that he would tell his grandchildren. Since these guys had Nick in tow, they were most likely not going to make it to the festival in Santa Barbara, but they were still going to go up that way anyway. It didn't seem like they thought this through very much. They had Nick, so now what? As they drove, a pager that Nick's mom had given him started chiming. She had just given him the thing a week earlier with the stipulation that he had to respond as quickly as possible when his mom beeped him. And it chimed again and again and again. And it was aggravating Jesse James. He threatened to harm Nick if he tried to run or do anything crazy, and he took his pager as well as some other items out of his pocket. He had some baggies of marijuana as well as some Valium. Jesse James let him have some Valium and smoke a little bit. But Nick also had a small phone book in his pocket. Jesse James flipped through the numbers, found Ben's, tore it out, and threw the book out the window. But whatever reason he did that, he would never give Ben a call. So now they needed to figure out where they could hide Nick. As it would turn out, Jesse Rugi had a party friend that lived in Santa Barbara, a guy named Ricky Hoflinger. They brought Nick into the bedroom and secured his wrists with duct tape and they used a sock as a blindfold. A friend of Ricky's who was over at the time was curious as to what was going on, but all Jesse Rugi would say is, Hollywood is tripping out. Jesse James told him to shut up, and he said in a hushed voice to the curious friend, 
don't say. I'm assuming Ricky and his friend did not want to have any part of this, so they left. He would later say that he didn't want to know what was going on, and he did not want to get involved. And Jesse James's cohorts kind of didn't want any part of this either. These are some serious charges, right? William Skidmore wanted to leave, and so did another friend that they had picked up after they kidnapped Nick, a guy named Brian Affronti. But they all seemed kind of intimidated by Jesse James, apparently, as Brian lied and made up a story that he had a previous engagement to attend to. He just didn't want Jesse James to think that he was trying to weasel his way out of what he was doing. So, Jesse James let them have the van. They were relieved that they weren't a part of the kidnapping anymore, but they were still going to be held accountable for some part of it. After all, William Skidmore took part in the actual kidnapping, and he would technically still be responsible for anything that would happen to Nick thereafter. Brian Affronte didn't actually take part in the kidnapping itself, so his role in the whole thing at this point was minimal. Jesse James would end up leaving Ricky's house as well that night. Records show that he did use his phone to call Ricky's house, most likely to check up on Nick. And what he's actually doing at this point is distancing himself from Nick. Jesse Rugi was still there, but Nick was no longer bound with duct tape and the blindfold was off as well. He was pretty relaxed considering the manner in which he was brought there, and I can only assume that he just didn't think that his life was in any kind of peril. These were his brother's friends. He might have thought that it was pretty cool that he was actually hanging out with them. Nick and Jesse Rugi smoked some weed. They drank some alcohol and they played some video games. Nick was probably glad that he wasn't having to deal with his parents at home, to be honest, seeing as he had been in some trouble earlier that day about what had happened the night before, coming home high. Eventually, Jesse Rugi decided to go back to his place with Nick which was only a mile away from Ricky's house. Jesse Rugi's father was the manager of a biological science greenhouse at UC Santa Barbara, and his mom was a Christian musician and singer. When they arrived, Jesse Rugi's parents saw Nick. They saw that he was with their son, but they never actually asked what he was doing there or why he was spending the night. Seems a little bit weird, but okay. Parents parent differently, right? So the following day, which was Monday, August 7th, 2000, Jesse Rugi, and I'm assuming his parents were gone for the day at work or whatever, he had company over at his house this time. 17-year-old Graham Presley, he was selling drugs for Jesse James in the Santa Barbara area. And with him, he had two girls that kind of just hung out with him most of the summer. 17-year-old Natasha Adams-Young and 16-year-old Kelly Carpenter. They all were over, hanging out, 
smoking weed, watching TV, eating food, all along doing all of this with Nick. Natasha thought Nick was kind of cute, and he fibbed and told her that he was 17. He's actually 15. Natasha would later describe the experience at Jesse Rugi's house as pretty laid back. There was no indication that anything was amiss. Everyone was having fun. Eventually, everyone piled into Natasha's car and they went over to her place for a little bit. And it was at this point, Natasha came to understand that Nick was brought to Santa Barbara by force. But he reassured her that everything was cool because these were his brother's friends. They had some kind of a dispute and he was trying to help his brother work through it. And that's why he was there. And he just wanted to make sure that his brother Ben was going to be okay. He told her this wasn't a big deal. He was going to be okay. They just had to work things out. And the best way for him to do that, to help his brother, was to go along with what these guys wanted for now. So when the group got to Natasha's house, she helped Nick with some small open wounds that he had sustained when he was beat up, just so that they wouldn't get infected. And a little while later after arriving at her house, Jesse Rugi left. This meant Nick was alone with Natasha, Kelly, and Graham. This would be the first and only time that none of the original three individuals who kidnapped Nick weren't with him. So dreamers, Nick is not being restrained. He seems to be in friendly company. None of the three people who jumped him and kidnapped him are there anymore. So does this mean that the kidnapping has ended? For all intents and purposes, Nick is free to go. To walk away, if he so chooses, right? Well, I guess it all depends on what Nick thinks is going on. He's probably not sure where he is. Remember, he's only 15. He could very well still be thinking that he's being held against his will. Remember, he is trying to protect his brother. Maybe the thought of fleeing never even crossed his mind out of fear that one of these guys might do something to harm Ben. And he just didn't want that. Ben was the reason Nick was being cooperative all along. He most likely doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize his safety. So the next day rolls around. Tuesday, August 8th. Nick was going into day three there in Santa Barbara, and they were still at Jesse Rugi's place. So by now, as I've taken you to this point of the story, you've come to find that virtually a parade of people have encountered Nick. And it is common knowledge that he is not there by choice, though he is very much at ease in spite of how he came to be in this predicament. But Natasha... This was rubbing her all the wrong way. Maybe it was because she kind of took a liking to Nick, but she just knew something wasn't right, and that maybe she needed to say something to someone. Well, her mom, as it were, happens to be a criminal defense attorney, 
She didn't get into specifics, but she kind of presented it as a hypothetical. That what if there was this kid who might be in some kind of trouble or danger that Natasha knew about it, what would be the best thing for her to do? And her mom said, if there was someone that she knew that was in trouble, the best thing for her to do would be to call the police. Natasha ruminated over this. Calling the police could potentially get a lot of people in big trouble. Is that something that she wanted to do? She was worried about Nick, but was he really in all that much trouble that warranted a call to the cops? She wanted to make sure first, before she made things worse than they needed to be, that Nick was really in some kind of danger. She paid Graham a visit. They took a walk and chatted about the situation. He tried to reassure her to not worry too much, that Nick was going to be fine. They saw him, right? He wasn't being restrained. He wasn't under any kind of duress. He was fine. The whole time that they were there with him, everything was fine. But Graham also reminded Natasha that Jesse James Hollywood was crazy. His words. He instructed her to keep her mouth shut because they could very well end up dead for doing something like snitching to the cops. Natasha wasn't satisfied with what Graham had to say, though. She paid Jesse Rugi a visit, too. She expressed her concerns for Nick, that she was worried about his safety, and Jesse promised that they were going to take Nick home. He even told Nick, too, promised him that they would take him home, telling him that they were probably going to give him some money to take a bus home that night. But Jesse Rugi did have this to say to Natasha, There better not be any cops at my door tomorrow. The next order of business was to party, naturally. They were going to let Nick go, so they wanted to just have a fun night. The group rented a motel room, wanting to have a pool party. But they needed a ride, apparently. Graham called his mom, and she said that she would give them a ride to the motel. When she picked them up, her son introduced Nick and told her that he was crashing at Jesse Rugi's house for a couple days. She pivoted around so she could get a look at her son's friend. She knew that her son made questionable choices when it came to the company that he kept. So much so that, a few months back, she invited Jesse Rugi out to lunch to size him up. She was worried about what kind of an influence Jesse Rugi would have on her son, as they were aware that Graham was getting into stuff that he shouldn't be. They knew Graham smoked marijuana, however, they had no idea that their son was dealing it as well for Jesse James Hollywood. She did what she could to be keen to the red flags. Nick, though, he seemed nice enough. He was cordial. He thanked her for the ride. And she dropped them off at the motel. And for the next few hours, they all smoke and drank and swam. Nick included. Graham talked to Nick about leaving. Maybe he should get his stuff and just get out of there. But Nick brushed him off, telling him that he was going home and there was no need to make things more complicated than they needed to be. In the meantime, 
Nick's mother and father have been in full-blown panic mode. They were scouring the city, putting up missing persons flyers all over West Hills, looking for anyone that they could think of that was friends with Nick to see if any of them had seen or heard anything from him. By day three, they finally filed a missing persons report for Nick with the police. And they weren't the only ones in panic mode. Jesse James Hollywood was as well, too. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. He was worried about keeping Nick, but he was just as worried about letting him go as well. What exactly was Jesse James doing all this time Jesse Rugi and Graham were hanging out with Nick? Well, while they were planning their pool party, Nick went to go see his attorney, a man named Stephen Hogg. He had been a close friend of the family for most of Jesse James's life, and Stephen Hogg had actually represented him when he had gotten into some legal troubles in the past, specifically a resisting arrest charge and being a minor in possession of alcohol. They sat down on the patio to talk. Jesse James told him that some friends kidnapped a kid and were holding him hostage. What should he do? Mr. Hogg urged him to go to the police, but Jesse James insisted that he couldn't. Mr. Hogg said, You have to. You have no choice. Jesse James asked him what kind of trouble were his friends in. And Mr. Hogg was blunt. If they asked for a ransom, they're looking at life. Jesse had heard enough. He stood up and ran off. Of course, Mr. Hogg was concerned about the conversation that he had just had with Jesse James. He attempted to reach him by his pager, but he never called back. In less than an hour's time, Jesse James's dad did call. He was out of town at the time. Mr. Hogg told him about the conversation that he had had with his son and told him to get a hold of his son and make sure you don't let him out of your sight. Jesse James's dad wanted Mr. Hogg to get a hold of a guy named John Roberts, another good friend of the family. John Roberts was kind of a shady guy, a one-time wise guy back in Chicago, and he was the one who owned the van that Jesse James had borrowed for the move but ended up using it for a felony kidnapping instead. It was his intentions to use some old wise guy tactics on these guys to try to track these kids down and find this kid that they've got kidnapped. And he's going to shut the victim up by offering him some money and all of this can just go away. And while this so-called wise guy plan was getting underway, everyone was desperately trying to get a hold of Jesse James via his pager. His dad, his attorney, they were blowing up his cell phone as well, and his girlfriend's phone. John Roberts' phone was getting blown up by Mr. Hogg and Jesse James's dad. It was a non-stop flood of calls. Yet, not one single call to the police. Jesse James was done. He came up with his own plan to weasel his way out of this and he was going to solicit the services of the other person who owed him a lot of money, Ryan Hoyt. 
Jesse James paid him a visit, and he posed this question. Do you want to erase your debt? Ryan was listening. There's this mess that needs to be cleaned up. Somebody needs to go take care of it. Of their circle of friends, if you can even call them friends, Ryan Hoyt was the weakest link. He was a high school dropout. He was denied entry into the Navy after a failed drug test. He had an alcoholic mother, an abusive father, a brother in prison for armed robbery, a heroin-addicted sister who, at the same time, was in a relationship with Ben. Looking for an escape from his own family, he kind of settled in with the Hollywoods. He just sort of adopted them as his family. He took care of Jesse James's little brother. He helped around the house with chores. And when Jesse James bought his own house, Ryan just went along with him. And he was always in debt with Jesse James. And the interest rate was outrageous. Payments were weekly. And if he missed one, there was a $100 penalty. But Ryan had no other options but to stay in the good graces of Jesse James. He simply had no other place to go. And this was actually going to be pretty good timing for Ryan. He was going to be 21 years old in two days. There is nothing he would like more than to be free and clear of owing any money to Jesse James. He couldn't think of a better 21st birthday gift to himself. And what's more, this would boost his rankings amongst Jesse James' circle of friends. He would stop bullying Ryan around, and he was finally being given something much more important than mowing his lawn or picking up his dog's poop. Doing this one thing for Jesse James was going to change everything for him. So yeah, he wanted this. Ryan Hoyt readily agreed to clean up this mess for Jesse James. Ryan was given a duffel bag. In it was a Tech DC-9 assault pistol. And if it sounds familiar, it was used in the Columbine High School shooting. But the one that Jesse James gave Ryan had been modified into an automatic machine gun able to shoot 12 rounds a second. At 8.30 that night, Jesse James called the motel where they were having their pool party to let them know that this thing with Nick was getting taken care of, that Ryan Hoyt was on his way there. And while all this was going on, Jesse was going to take his girlfriend Michelle out for her 20th birthday, which happened to fall on that very day. They had dinner at the Outback Steakhouse, a good distance away in the city of Northridge, California. Dinner came to $108.98. Jesse James charged it to his credit card. And not only was his girlfriend Michelle happy, Jesse James just solidified his alibi. As it was getting close to 11 p.m. that night, Jesse Rugi announced that the party was over. Nick's ride home was on their way, so the others that were there at the pool party packed it up and went home. 
Ryan Hoyt, ever the weakest link, managed to get lost and had to stop several times for directions. And when he finally got there, he found the three of them, Jesse Ruge, Graham Presley, and Nick Markowitz. And I'm not really sure why Graham stuck around. He really hadn't been a part of this whole kidnapping scheme. As a matter of fact, Ryan Hoyt had never even met him before that moment. But Graham stayed, and in doing so, he became a part of it all. Ryan and Graham got into the car and started driving. Graham was doing the navigating because he was familiar with the area. They made a 15-mile drive through some very narrow single-lane roads along the Santa Inez Mountains. They chose a spot to park and hiked a part of the way through some thick brush for about 100 yards or so, the length of a football field. Graham was carrying a shovel, and when they found a spot, he started digging. He claimed Ryan Hoyt ordered him to dig, holding the Tech DC-9 pointed at him. But Ryan Hoyt said that that never happened. Either way, Graham was digging, but it was not going well at all. The ground was very hard and rocky, and he ended up maybe carving out about a foot or two deep into the ground. And that was just going to have to do. Ryan and Graham made their way back down to the motel to pick up Jesse, Ruge, and Nick. By this time, it was already past midnight, August 9th. They took the same route that they had taken an hour earlier to the crest of the Santa Inez Mountains. They parked where they had previously parked, but this time, Graham stayed in the car. Jesse Ruge and Ryan Hoyt walked Nick up towards the place where they had prepared that shallow grave. Dreamers, I'm starting to wonder if it's really sinking in for Nick now. Is he realizing what these men are doing? Or is he still thinking that this is all still something that he needed to go along with to make things right? They duct tape Nick's mouth shut and they duct tape his hands behind his back. Was he thinking that they were going to hide him here while they tried to sort out everything between Jesse James and his brother? But when they pulled out that tech DC-9, did it finally dawn on him? Or could he have still been under the impression that maybe they were just trying to scare him? Not once in the last few days did Nick ever feel like he was in any kind of danger. And looking back upon this, I can't help but wonder what was going through Nick's mind. Ryan would be asked later on about this very moment. The moment that he led Nick up to that grave. Does it haunt him? Did Nick beg for his life? Does this keep you up at night? Ryan Hoyt took the shovel and smashed it into Nick's head and then shoved him backwards into the grave. He aimed his weapon, squeezed the trigger, 
Nine rounds fired, and then it jammed. I don't know how many bullets would have gone into Nick if it hadn't. The rounds tore through Nick's stomach, his chest, his neck, and his face. Almost every bullet tearing straight through his body and out his back. Ryan shoved the gun underneath Nick and along with Jesse Ruge attempted to bury the body. But the grave was just too shallow. They used anything that they could find to cover up what they had done. And Ryan was pleased with it. Kind of giddy with excitement at his very first kill. Jesse Ruge vomited. They went back to the car and drove off. They dropped Graham off back at the motel and instructed him to check out in the morning. He was supposed to be home already. He had a curfew. Remember, he's only 17 years old. But his mom had already gone to bed, so he just stayed there and gave his mom a call in the morning at 6 a.m. to come and pick him up. And this is where all the lies began. Graham's mom got there to the motel, and clearly she could see something was wrong with her son. All of the blood had drained from his face. She asked him if he was okay, and he just explained that he didn't feel well, and he had trouble sleeping. But to his mom, it seemed more than that. He looked sick, but he also looked kind of scared or nervous but she couldn't be sure. And she really didn't inquire any further. When they got home, Graham called up Natasha. He wanted to let her know that he gave Nick a ride home, back down to the San Fernando Valley. She was relieved to get that update. She turned around and called her mom and said everything worked out okay with that thing that she had mentioned the other day about the boy in trouble. And mom was glad to hear that news as well. Ryan Hoyt made his way back down to West Hills. He met up with Jesse James, who was very pleased with Ryan having taken care of that task that he assigned him. He even rewarded him with $400 more on top of wiping out that balance of his debt. Ryan went to buy some new clothes, but in reality, the next few days for him, he was in a complete fog of drinking and smoking and pill popping. He was celebrating his 21st birthday, which was on August 10th. They partied at another old baseball buddy's house a guy named Casey Sheehan. He had once been a dealer for Jesse, too. And in his fog of alcohol and drugs, Ryan actually confessed to Casey what he had done, that he had executed Nick. Casey Sheehan wasn't really sure what to make of what he was hearing. There wasn't very much emotion about what he was telling him. Ryan didn't seem overcome with any kind of guilt or remorse, so Casey decided that he just kind of didn't believe him. But here's the thing. 
It was Casey's car that Ryan had used to drive up to Santa Barbara to clean up Jesse James's mess. And this worried Casey. So much so that he decided he needed to confront Jesse James himself. And when he did, all Jesse said was, don't worry about it. Let's get back to Nick for a moment. From what it sounded like, it seemed like these guys chose a pretty good hiding spot to put Nick's body, right? I mean, they drove for a long time, through some winding, narrow roads. They even hiked part of it, too. They figured it would take a long time to find Nick's body, if anyone ever found it at all, right? Not so fast. In case you hadn't noticed thus far in the story, criminal masterminds, these morons are not. They thought they picked a remote location. And maybe it looked like that at night, especially. But in reality, they dug that grave right smack in the middle of a hiking trail. A very busy hiking trail. And it wasn't only busy with hikers, but remnants of campfires. There was litter all over the place, empty beer bottles, graffiti covering all of the boulders surrounding the spot. It only took three days, on August 12th, for a group of hikers to notice the smell and swarms of flies hovering around where Nick lay. They may have thought for a moment that it was an animal, except upon closer inspection, it was wearing pants. They alerted police. Nick had decomposed very quickly in the August heat, and it took the medical examiner two days to match a terribly decomposed fingerprint to the ones Nick had on record from the time that he was caught with marijuana. On Monday, August 14th, Detectives from Santa Barbara drove down to the Markowitz residence, getting there at around 6.30 in the morning. Nick's mom was still in bed, though I doubt she was resting very well. Nick's dad looked out the front window. He turned to Susan and told her that there were men in suits at their front door. They knew what the news was going to be. The word about Nick's death made its way into the media by the next day, August 15th. Natasha spotted Nick's picture in her local morning paper. That cute boy with the sweet sense of humor. The one that she had helped with the small injury from when he was jumped. The one she continued to be concerned about even though he himself kept reassuring her that everything was going to be okay that he was helping his brother and he was going to be going home in no time. He was dead. Tears welled up in her eyes. She got in touch with Jesse Rugi. The first words out of his mouth when he got on the phone, it's not what you think. She hung up and drove over to his place. When he opened the door, he didn't have a shirt on, and as she described it, his heart was visibly pounding in his chest. And she knew. And she knew what she had to do. 
finally, for all the mindlessness of this entire cluster of a scheme, finally, somebody steps up and does the right thing for the very first time since the day Nick was kidnapped. Natasha went right over to her mom's office. Remember, mom is a criminal defense attorney, and Natasha spoke to an attorney at her office. They made arrangements for Natasha to report everything that she knew to law enforcement truthfully, and in return, Natasha would be granted full immunity from any prosecution. By mid-afternoon, Natasha was sitting down with detectives, and the entire saga came pouring out of her. And with it, she gave up everybody's name, everybody's address, every location of everything that she knew, Everything. Who, what, where, when, how, and why. To the best of her knowledge. On August 16, 2000, Jesse Ruge, Graham Presley, William Skidmore, and Ryan Hoyt were all placed under arrest. And they basically all fessed up. Implicating themselves in the murder of Nicholas Markowitz, and implicating each other as well. But what about Jesse James Hollywood? We'll get to that. But something interesting happened with Ryan Hoyt, however. He called his mom Collect from jail. Her name was Victoria Hoyt. And of course, their conversation would be recorded. She would make a big, huge blender as she spoke to her son on the phone. She vacillated between anger and sadness and frustration and yelling and crying. It was the full range of emotions for her. She pushed her son to talk to police. Tell them everything. Tell them the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Do it now. Don't wait. Don't hide. Don't hesitate. Just do it. Never stopping to think that he should wait to talk to an attorney first. No, just go do it, do it now. Lay it all out to bear. Not once it ever crossing her mind that her son was guilty of smashing Nick in the head with a shovel and sending nine bullets through his body. She pleaded with him, telling him he's innocent. He's innocent. She told him the only thing he was guilty of was being associated with these people. And he agreed with her. She asked him who did this, and he told her that he didn't know. She asked him where Jesse James was, and he told her that he didn't know either. She screamed at him through the phone, Then find him. Spill your guts and get it out now. Do it for me. Do it for your family. Do it for yourself. Tell them what you know. Tell them now, you don't defend anybody. This is your life. And then she stopped and said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. They will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
They eventually hung up. Then Ryan Hoyt asked for a guard. He requested to talk to the detectives about his role in this crime. He was taken to an interview room where, I don't know if Ryan knew it or not, but the room was equipped with a microphone and a camera to ensure that everything he said would be on record. He sat down in the chair and kind of slouched, and he put his hand on his forehead. There were two detectives there with him. They asked him what he wanted to talk about, and he answered with a question of his own. If I talk, does it get said in court that I said it? This guy just isn't the brightest, am I right? Doing everything that he could to minimize his role in as much of what happened to Nick as possible, Ryan began to tell detectives about the murder. If you recall, Ryan Hoyt didn't have anything to do with the kidnapping or the holding of Nick against his will at any point in the three days or so that he was in the company of Jesse James's crew of misfits. Ryan hung back, cleaning up that broken glass from the windows that Ben Markowitz had shattered. It wasn't until Jesse James came back around to offer him that chance to clear up his debt with him that he became involved in this. But what he would ultimately be fessing up to is the worst, most heinous part of this tragic story. The murder of an innocent kid that had no beef with any of them. Ryan Hoyt even told detectives this bizarre statement, quote, What Ben owed Jesse didn't, in my opinion, I'm going to say this off the record, in my opinion, didn't justify this kid's death. I'm sorry, dreamers, but I can't even begin to get my mind around what this guy is thinking. How many things are wrong with every single word that is coming from this idiot's mouth? Oh, it's your opinion that a $1,200 debt wasn't justification for pumping nine bullets into Nick, who wasn't even the person who owed the debt in the first place? You think? And what the hell do you mean off the record? Do you know what you're even saying? Do you even know where you are? Do you see who you're talking to? This guy is so dumb. And you guys, it gets even dumber. Oh my goodness. The detectives must be giggling like kids in a candy store inside listening to this guy just implicate himself all over the damn place. So Ryan continues. He needed these detectives to be absolutely crystal clear about this. He had nothing to do with Nick's kidnapping. He wasn't there. He didn't take part in it. He really didn't even know that there was a plan to carry that out. So just make sure you don't try to pin any of that on him. And as for rumors that Ryan was the one who dug Nick's grave, he needed to set the record straight on that too. He can't believe all of the rumors and conjecture going around about him having been the one to dig the grave that Nick was actually buried in. This was absolutely false. He had nothing to do with that, and he's offended to no end that the suggestion had even been made. Well, the detectives were kind of just feeding Ryan information. Whether or not it was true, 
They were telling him that other individuals they had in custody were pointing the finger at him, even saying that it was Ryan who bound and gagged Nick with duct tape. Ryan was incensed at the notion. Really? He scoffed. Wow, I really love that one. He needed the detectives to get the story straight once and for all. And this is the God's honest truth, he says. The only thing I did was kill him. Well, alrighty then. I wonder if his mom, Mrs. Hoyt, regrets advising her son to tell the detectives everything. Because tell everything is exactly what Ryan Hoyt did after she demanded that he do so. Everyone that was under arrest were spilling their guts too. And Jesse James? Well, where the hell was he at? He had distanced himself from everything. He did what he could to keep his hands clean. He stayed away from Santa Barbara. He set up his own alibi. He had everyone else doing the dirty work for him while he ran the show from afar. He played everybody. Let's track what he was up to in the wake of Nick's murder. Jesse James first began attempting to collect on some debts that were owed to him, something that he always seemed really consumed with. One of the guys who had driven the van back down from Santa Barbara following the kidnapping, Brian Affronti, owed Jesse James about $4,000. He was also keeping a shotgun that belonged to Jesse in his house, hidden in a sleeping bag. When Jesse James arrived at Brian's home to collect the money, Brian wasn't home but he was able to tell Jesse James where to find it and that he had stashed it someplace in his house. But his parents were there, so he told them to take the sleeping bag with the shotgun too so his parents wouldn't think it was weird. Okay, I'm just going to say this right now, but what the hell is up with all of these parents and all of these kids and young adults running amok from the San Fernando Valley to Santa Barbara and back, borrowing cars, partying at houses, dealing drugs, smoking drugs, drinking, girls, crashing at everybody else's house, kidnapping, having guns, motel parties, and all these parents have really prestigious, high-paying jobs, and their kids are just wreaking havoc and mayhem everywhere they go. Is this a case of more overindulged, unsupervised, Underdisciplined, spoiled rich kids? It kind of sounds like it, I guess. So anyway, Jesse James by this time was driving a Lincoln that he had leased. He went to Palm Springs first. His girlfriend Michelle was there participating in a modeling convention. When he arrived, he went to his bank and withdrew about $24,000. And then the couple headed to Las Vegas where they checked in at the Bellagio Hotel and Casino. Meanwhile, Jesse James's dad, Jack, had heard about Nick's murder. And ever since he had heard about what his son had told the family attorney, Mr. Hogg, regarding the kidnapping, he had been frantically trying to get a hold of his son to get some answers. But Jesse James had yet to return any of his dad's calls. 
Finally, he did call his dad to let him know that he was headed to Colorado to visit a family that they had resided with for some time in the 90s, the Dispenzas. Jesse's dad immediately called Richard Dispenza. This was Jesse James's godfather. Richard, at the time, was the assistant football coach and head coach of the girls' soccer team at Woodland Park High School in the city of Colorado Springs. Jack Hollywood told him that his son was in some kind of trouble. He didn't know what kind of trouble, how he was involved, or even what was going on. But all he knew was that Jesse James was headed towards his house. Well, come to find, both Jesse James and Michelle were at Richard's house already in Colorado Springs the day that everyone was arrested for Nick's murder after Natasha had implicated everyone with her statement. And Jesse James is going to yet drag another person down with him in this already convoluted story. Michelle had flown back to Southern California by the time Jack Hollywood got in touch with him. Richard Dispenzia helped Jesse James hide. Using his own name, Richard rented a room for Jesse at the Ramada Inn. When detectives from Santa Barbara showed up at his doorstep in Colorado Springs the following day, Jesse was checked in at the hotel. Richard Dispenzia, a well-respected member of the community, a teacher, a coach. He had just been named Teacher of the Year at Woodland Park High. There was a community outreach group called Tobacco-Free Teens, a group that encourages teens to quit or to prevent teens from smoking. Richard Dispenzia was the founder of this group. The detectives were standing there, standing right before him, asking for the whereabouts of Jesse James Hollywood. Richard had the opportunity to do the right thing, to end all of this in that moment. But he chose not to. He lied to the detectives. He told them that he didn't know where Jesse James was. For this, Richard Dispenzia would later go on to be charged with harboring a fugitive. He was sentenced to three years of probation and 480 hours of community service. He was placed on leave until his conviction, and then he was fired. But he continued to be supported by many in the community, those that he had worked with and coached. He was able to pick up the pieces of his life and continue working in some capacity in coaching. But he passed away suddenly of a massive stroke on July 4, 2011, at the age of 58. Detectives did find Jesse James's lease Lincoln parked at Richard Dispenzia's house, and the shotgun that he had picked up from Brian Affronte's house was in there. But there was also an AR-15 assault rifle in the vehicle as well. Jesse James left the Ramada Inn on August 20, 2000. On foot, he walked to the home of yet another old friend of his, a man named Chaz Salisbury. It had been years since the two had spoken. Jesse James made up a story about having been pickpocketed while he was in Vegas and he needed a ride back there. And Chaz said sure, he'd give him a ride. The things people do for this guy, right? Jesse James paid for food and gas and whatever they needed out of a plastic bag stuffed with cash. When they arrived in Vegas, 
Jesse asked Chris if he could just take him all the way back to California. And again, sure, no problem, he says. But as they made this leg of the drive, Jesse James divulged the whole story as to what happened with Nick Markowitz. He explained how Ben owed him some money, but Ben was not only brushing him off, but they were in this back-and-forth feud over it. So they happened to see Ben's little brother Nick walking down the street as they were headed to retaliate for those broken windows. So they took the opportunity to grab Nick to get back at Ben. But then Jesse James said it was a huge mistake to do that because they had him, and now what? They really weren't sure what to do, and they were afraid to let him go because they figured he'd report what they did to the cops. So after he talked to his attorney about the possible legal ramifications for the kidnapping charge, he did not like what he was hearing. So Jesse James decided to put an end to the whole thing. Kidnapping was already going to get him life in prison. Getting rid of Nick wasn't going to be that much worse. And that was the logic of Jesse James Hollywood. Chaz became very nervous after everything Jesse James had told him while they were driving. Next, Jesse James asked him to take him to see John Roberts. Remember him? The old retired wise guy from Chicago who loaned Jesse James the van that they had kidnapped Nick in? When John saw Jesse James standing at his screen door, he got up quickly and yanked him into the house and closed the door. He knew Jesse James was up to his eyeballs in this kidnapping. He had already done what he could to get rid of any evidence in the van by pretty much having it sterilized inside and out since getting it back. Jesse James wanted his help obtaining a fake ID, but John had long lost touch with any connections he used to have. He just wasn't about that life anymore, I guess. His connections were back in Chicago, and he just really wasn't willing to get involved any deeper with Jesse James at that point. He couldn't help him anymore. He couldn't give him any money. And Jesse James was not welcome to stay at his house. So he left. One week later, Santa Barbara Sheriff showed up at John Roberts' home with a search warrant in hand. They knocked, but nobody answered. They heard noises coming from inside, so they summoned the SWAT team. This brought Roberts to the door. He said he was sleeping. They fired tear gas into the house in an effort to flush out anyone hiding, but nobody else emerged. Jesse James was gone, and he would stay gone for a little more than four and a half years. And we will talk more about his life as a fugitive in a little bit. As you can imagine, there were going to be numerous trials as a result of Nick Markowitz's murder, both criminal and civil. I am not going to go into all of the details about every trial. That would take forever, as this story has already been long and complicated. So I'm going to briefly summarize the outcomes of each trial. Ryan Hoyt, who was 21 years old at the time of Nick's murder, was charged with first-degree murder. He was made to stand trial in October of 2001, and it lasted approximately one month. During the trial, he took the stand in his own defense. 
He denied killing Nick, claiming that the things he said to detectives in his interrogation were lies, that he was trying to protect Jesse James and his friends. He claimed his only role was to deliver the duffel bag to Santa Barbara. His attorney tried to play the he's a bumbling idiot card, but it didn't work. On November 21st, 2001, Ryan Hoyt was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Nicholas Markowitz. On December 9th, 2001, he was sentenced to death. Today, Ryan Hoyt is 39 years old, and he continues to reside on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Jesse Rugi was 20 years old at the time of Nick's murder. He was charged with aiding in the kidnapping and the execution of Nick Markowitz. In 2002, he was convicted of aggravated kidnapping for ransom or extortion with special circumstances. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after seven years. His first attempt at parole in 2006 was denied. But on July 2, 2013, Jesse Rugi was granted parole, with the parole board reaching the conclusion that he no longer posed a reasonable threat to society. Of course, Nick's mom, Susan, was outraged, but powerless to do anything about it. And on October 24, 2013, after serving 11 years, Jesse Rugi was released from prison and is still currently on parole. William Skidmore, who was also 20 years old at the time Nick was murdered, but was not present when the murder took place, was charged with kidnapping and robbery. In September of 2002, he pled guilty, and as a part of his plea bargain, he was sentenced to nine years. William Skidmore was released from prison in April of 2009. Graham Presley, who was 17 at the time of Nick's murder, was the one who dug the shallow grave. In July of 2002, he was acquitted of kidnapping, but the jury was deadlocked as to whether or not Graham Presley participated in the fatal shooting. Remember, if you recall, he guided Ryan Hoyt up into the mountains and dug that grave before they went back and got Nick and Jesse Ruge and returned to the spot they chose. He waited in the car while Nick was executed. He was retried in October of 2002 and was convicted of second-degree murder. He was incarcerated at a California Youth Authority until 2007, just as he was about to turn 25. Incidentally, Graham Presley was the very first person in the United States to be charged as an adult for a crime under Proposition 21, which was passed in 2001. It increased the range of criminal penalties for crimes committed by youthful offenders between the ages of 14 and 17 and would incorporate them into the adult criminal justice system. In 2003, the Markowitz family named 32 people in a civil lawsuit. Along with the kidnappers, the killers, and the LAPD, they named everyone who came in contact with Nick during the time that he was held captive and failed to call for help. They named the parents, the owners of the homes that Nick was brought to, the motel where they had their pool party, 
as well as the guy whose van they used to carry out the abduction. Basically anyone who knowingly or not came in contact with the killers and the kidnappers during the time Nick was being held. They were awarded $11.2 million. And this is basically how it broke down. Jesse James, still a fugitive and on the FBI's most wanted list at the time, and two of his co-defendants in Nick's murder were ordered to pay $10 million in punitive damages to the Markowitz family, even though Jesse James had not yet been convicted of anything. The judge cited the O.J. Simpson civil trial, where Simpson was ordered to pay millions of dollars to the Brown and Goldman families for the wrongful deaths of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, but was not convicted of their murders. The Markowitzes settled out of court with 14 defendants the year before, including the LAPD, for $350,000, the retired wise guy and van owner, John Roberts, for $165,000, Jesse James's parents, Jack and Lori Hollywood, for $50,000. Nick's mom was awarded $684,000 for the loss of her son, and his dad, $510,000. Jesse Rugi and Ryan Hoyt were ordered to pay $15,000 in funeral costs. So, let's get back to Jesse James Hollywood. When you step back and look at all of the people we met through the telling of this story, Jesse James would be the one who stands out amongst them all as the one who never lacked initiative. Everyone in this case was so lackadaisical, so apathetic, so willing to nonchalantly go along with the kidnapping and murder like it was an errand you do between picking up your dry cleaning and going to the post office. Even Nick, the victim himself, ever so passively just went with the flow. Was it the marijuana smoking that added to their apathy? It's not unlike any other average teen that smokes weed. There is something extraordinary that created this numbed indifference that stifled everybody's senses of morality. They all seemed to just go blind and deaf as they passively made their way through Nick's ordeal without a thought or a care in the world. Where was everyone's sense of judgment or their understanding of the circumstance or their consideration for consequence? It was as if they all just checked out. Even Natasha, though she consistently displayed moments of concern for Nick, she was able to delude herself into thinking that nothing was really wrong because in her own words, it just didn't seem real. And the parents, who crisscrossed in and out of Nick's story, even they didn't pick up on anything. Or they didn't want to. Nobody wanted to ask the hard questions. Nobody wanted to see what was right below the surface. They all just chose to see what was being shown to them. By their kids. Jesse James, at the age of 20, was added to the FBI's most wanted list 
making him one of the youngest ever to be placed on it. He was featured multiple times on Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. There was a reward for as much as $50,000 for his capture, 30000 of it from the Markowitz family themselves. And they had even said, if Jesse James turned himself in voluntarily, they would place that $30,000 in a college fund for Jesse James's then 13-year-old brother. But Jesse James remained a ghost. You see, it wasn't as hard as you would think it would be for him. As it's been the general consensus that Jesse James's parents were helping him stay gone, particularly his father, Jack Hollywood. You see, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Except Jack Hollywood is much more cultured, more shrewd. He had a savviness about him. He kept a low profile unlike his son, who enjoyed attention and being flashy. And obviously, Jack Hollywood made smarter choices than his son did. According to the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department, Jack Hollywood is a large-scale marijuana trafficker based in the San Fernando Valley. Jack Hollywood comes off as a pretty regular, modest businessman who uses baseball as a front for his drug trafficking. He's been referred to as a mobster, and Jesse James went into the family business, and his dad was his supplier. One-time wise guy John Roberts and Jack Hollywood were connected even when law enforcement raided Jack Hollywood's home with a search warrant, all they seized were some financial and tax papers, mortgage statements, a couple small baggies of marijuana, and a few thousand dollars in cash. Hardly what you'd expect to find with a suspected high-level drug trafficker. And Jack Hollywood loved baseball. And his front for all of this was opening a trading card shop and he also ran a wholesale car business. Unlike his son, Jack Hollywood did what he could to blend in. And investigators believe it was his dad who was helping Jesse James stay in hiding. You see, when Jesse was first a fugitive, he was doing, I guess, what you could call amateur fugitive moves. He was going to see people from his past who might be able to help him, he had a lot of cash with him, and he was talking a lot about his crime. But once he finally made his way back to California, he was gone. And authorities think his dad took control of Jesse's fugitive status. If he hadn't, they strongly feel like Jesse would have been quickly apprehended. Even if investigators believe Jack Hollywood was aiding and abetting the fugitive, it was going to be another thing to prove it. But as much as Jesse had his parents on his side, Nick had his parents on his side as well. Susan Markowitz was never going to give up looking for Jesse James Hollywood. She was always looking around her, everywhere she went. She always had copies of the FBI's most wanted posters with her. She turned them into business cards and left them on windshields everywhere. She was not going to let this go. But it's not to say that this was easy on her. 
Susan had been hospitalized at least a dozen times and contemplated suicide, popped pills, drowned in alcohol, cut her wrists. But she somehow managed to keep going, covering as much of Southern California as she possibly could with wanted posters. There was hardly a day that went by that Susan Markowitz wasn't trying to track down Jesse James Hollywood. Two years would pass when the police got a tip that Jesse James was in Brazil, a country that had been known to be somewhat of a haven for international fugitives, with local laws often protecting them from extradition. And it seemed like a place Jesse would like to go, like Rio de Janeiro. Beautiful weather, so much fun to be had, carnival. But the tips seemed to lead nowhere. And then there were other tips that led away from Brazil. And this would go on for four years following Nick's murder. But then one day, towards the end of 2004, the Santa Barbara Sheriff stopped by to see Nick's parents. They told them that they were going to find Jesse Hollywood. They didn't say that they were going to try and find him. They said that they were going to find him. And it wasn't an if. It was a when. After a string of tips and leads, they were being led about 65 miles or so outside of Rio de Janeiro towards a beach resort on the eastern coast of Brazil. And just off the beach, behind a tall wooden gate, there was a home. A man lived there. The locals knew to be a Canadian guy named Michael Costa Giro. But everyone called him Mike. He was quiet. He had two dogs. He liked to work out and lift weights. And he always wore a baseball cap and kept his face turned down. There was a small bar that he frequented just steps from his house. Sometimes at night, he would go from bar to bar. But everyone knew him. And when he was drinking, he was talking. There was something about him that people knew that he needed some kind of help. A couple of years back, Mike met an older woman at a singles bar in Rio de Janeiro, Marcia Reyes. He told her that he came to Brazil to study, and she could see that he was young, and he looked younger than he actually was because of his stature. She felt like he seemed lost, and he drank a lot, sometimes getting into bar fights, but he was always good to her. They began dating, and eventually, they began living together. And to her, he was everything that she wanted and needed. Sweet, kind, caring, loving, affectionate. He gave her everything that she wanted. They were living a really good life. Then one day, in March of 2005, Mike received a phone call from somebody in his family. 
It was a cousin of his who he had not seen in years. She was coming to Brazil on vacation and wanted to connect with him. So they made a plan to meet at a cafe near Mike's house. He, along with Marcia, headed over there. They sat down, they had some coffee, and they waited for Mike's cousin. But what Mike, well, let's call him Jesse James again because Mike is about to be finished. What he didn't know was investigators from California had been tracking him for quite some time. They were working with Brazilian authorities who were keeping tabs on the fugitive. As they sipped on their coffee, a woman appeared at their table. Jesse James stood up, but this was not his cousin. She was Brazilian federal agent Kelly Bernardo. Jesse James was stunned. And as other agents approached and surrounded him, they told him that he was under arrest, but he told them that he was Michael Garreau. Of course, they knew they had the right guy. His four and a half years on the run had finally come to an end. He was placed under arrest for the kidnapping and murder of Nick Markowitz. Police haven't outright said it, but confidential sources familiar with the case have said that they were led to Jesse James by tapping his father's phone and listening in on their phone calls. And from all that I could find online, Jack Hollywood hasn't faced any charges in his role in any of this. That's not to say that he never did. I just was unable to find the information. Marcia was in complete shock at what she was witnessing. The man that she fell in love with, kind, charming, caring, a murderer. How could this be? As he was being taken away from the cafe, she followed, begging the Brazilian agents to please stop. This is not possible. This cannot be. They have a child together. That's right. Marcia was six months pregnant with Jesse James's baby. Someone had given him the advice that if he had a child in Brazil, that he could not be extradited or deported out of the country. That wasn't completely wrong. It used to be that way, but the laws changed. And not only that, having entered into Brazil with a fake Canadian passport was grounds for immediate extradition anyway. Marcia would give birth a few months later and name the baby John Paul Hollywood Reyes. She would say she named him John Paul in honor of the Pope as opposed to an outlaw like Jesse James. In every sense of the name, right? Susan Markowitz received the news that she had been waiting years to hear. The search for Jesse James Hollywood was over. She crumpled into tears. It had been a long time since she'd cried over this. But this finally being over, it was overwhelming. The following month, in April of 2005, Jesse James was back in Santa Barbara. He was arraigned on charges of kidnapping and murder, to which he pleaded not guilty. 
Even though he did not pull the trigger, even though he wasn't even there, he was facing the death penalty. But what needed to be proven was if he was the one that ordered Nick's execution. While all of this was going on, there was a movie in the making. It's called Alpha Dog, and it stars Justin Timberlake and Sharon Stone. Production started before Jesse James was actually apprehended, and the Markowitzes cooperated with the filmmakers. I do have the movie on DVD. Someone loaned it to me not too long ago. But I haven't watched it yet because all the names and all the places have been changed. And because, as I mentioned in the beginning, there are so many players in this story, I did not want to confuse myself any further by having to track a whole different set of names, trying to match their movie roles to their real-life roles in Nick's murder. So I may watch it sometime when I'm finished with this. But what's complicating the case against Jesse James is the prosecutor, Ron Zonin. He cooperated with the filmmakers as well by providing copies of documents on the case and serving as an unpaid consultant. He would later say that he thought that it might help bring in tips and lead to the capture of Jesse James Hollywood. He was the one that prosecuted all of Jesse James's co-defendants. Jesse's defense attorney had this to say about it. Quote, We are deeply concerned that Mr. Hollywood receive a fair trial, and by the prosecutor developing, producing, and creating a motion picture prior to trial, it puts us in the position where this particular jury, in all probability, will see that version of events, and we are deeply concerned about it. By early December of 2005, Jesse James's attorney tried and failed to stop the release of Alpha Dog. In October of 2006, based on Prosecutor Zonin's disclosure of the case files and consulting on the movie, he was recused from the case. Prosecutor Zonin maintained that if anyone in the jury pool who may have seen the movie will be excused, he was adamant that there was no misconduct on his part and he was not paid for his input and he did not need to be recused. So in December of 2006, the California Supreme Court granted a review of the case, staying the order to recuse Prosecutor Zonin. A year and a half later, on May 12, 2008, the California Supreme Court ruled that Prosecutor Zonin need not be recused, but he was ultimately replaced by leading prosecuting attorney Joshua Lynn. Delay after delay after delay, the trial finally got underway on May 15, 2009. Witnesses who were called included Jeff Markowitz, Nicholas's dad, Pauline Mahoney, the one who was driving by when she witnessed the men attacking Nick, Brian Affronte, Jesse James's one-time friend who stored that shotgun, Chaz Salisbury, the one who drove him from Colorado to California, Kelly Carpenter, one of the girls who saw Nick at Jesse Ruggie's house. Richard Hoflinger, the friend whose house they first went to with Nick when they got to Santa Barbara following the kidnapping. Several other residents in and around the area where all of this took place also testified. Michelle Lasher, 
Jesse James's one-time girlfriend with a tattoo of his name on her lower back, but she would take the stand and proclaim her love for him still, and was considered a hostile witness. Hollywood family attorney Stephen Hogg testified about the conversation he had with Jesse James regarding the consequences of kidnapping. Graham Presley came to testify about his role in the crime. And Nick's brother, Ben Markowitz, took the stand and described in detail how all of this came to be. Jesse James Hollywood took the stand in his own defense. And this does not surprise me one bit. He denied having any role in the murder, even going so far as to say that he was upset when Ryan Hoyt told him that he killed him. He discussed the kidnapping and his time on the lamb. He testified over a period of four days, and he looked sharp and well-spoken. And when the prosecutor had a chance to cross-examine him, all he did was pretty much deny everything. The case went to the jury on July 8, 2009. They deliberated over three days before returning their verdict, guilty of kidnapping and first-degree murder with special circumstances, making him eligible for the death penalty. Both Jesse James's mom and Nick's mom took the stand in the penalty phase, as did Jesse James's brother and Nick's brother. The jury would go on to recommend life imprisonment rather than the death penalty. So far, all of Jesse James's appeals for both a new trial and a new sentence have all been denied. His attorney maintains that Nick had ample time and freedom to leave but chose not to, and Jesse James had no involvement after that. But his conviction and sentence have both been upheld. Jesse James got married in 2014 to Melinda Inos, a pen pal. And today, Jesse James Hollywood and Ryan Hoyt are the only ones still serving time for Nick's murder. Thank you so much for joining me for this 59th episode of California Dreaming. Please join us on the discussion page on Facebook, where you can leave your comments and feedback about this story as well as all of the other stories we have covered. You can also find us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Don't forget, if you need more California Dreaming, for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to the bonus content on California Dreaming's Patreon. And if you are a current Patreon subscriber, please join our sister page, kd 2 Postmortem. It's an exclusive discussion page for patrons only. So if you subscribe, don't forget to request to join that discussion group as well. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located here in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of an eclectic group of shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 4-1-Owned, Historium, 
Vox Arcana, and the Podience. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, as well as our merchandise store. There's a blog, and if you want to just email us and let us know what you think, you can do that there too. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. We are the Voice of the Victim podcast. Every Thursday, we discuss cases that have been influenced by abuse in some way and try to make sense of these senseless things. We also try to identify the missed opportunities where people could have made a difference in the future of the victim. We hope to help others know what to look for so we can protect ourselves and our children. Subscribe to us on your favorite app and help us spread our message. And remember, if you see something, say something. We are all the voice of the victim.